But uh, what I'd like to do is I would like to, in the Bible, back up to a day or so just before Jesus sets out on his journey to Jerusalem. If you'll look, if you brought your Bibles and you look on page, not on page, not, your Bible will be different than mine probably, look at uh, the uh, 10th chapter of Mark, beginning with the 17th verse. It says, and he was setting out, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And now I want you to look, the next sentence says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is now on his way to the cross. The last person he invited to follow him to be a disciple was just before he started his journey to the cross. 
this young man, and we know he's a young man because in one of the other Gospels it says that he is young. In fact, in Matthew it reports that he was young. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they report that he was rich. And Luke reports that he was a ruler. And some theologians think now that they know who this rich young ruler was because there is a man who was reported at this time to be the richest, youngest ruler that Israel ever had. And so they pretty well have pinpointed who this fellow was. Have you ever wondered what happened to him? You know, we always just say, he went away, and that was it. But you know, there's a lot more to this story. And so like Paul Harvey today, I want you to hear the rest of the story about the rich young ruler. And I want you to see how it ties in to this journey to the cross that Jesus was on. Jesus headed out from here, and he goes on to uh, Jerusalem. And as he goes into Jerusalem, he's greeted by the people that are there. They come out to see because he has a following, an entourage, as you would, that's come with him this way. And so he's entering in, and there's all this hubbub, and, and, and everybody is just excited about what's getting ready to happen. And the whole town is turning out for him. And then uh, he goes on, and that was on Sunday that he entered into town. And as the children were uh, 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 running around crying Hosanna in the uh, temple, some of the uh, elders in the temple come up to him and say, you need to make these kids be quiet. And you remember what Jesus replied? He replied that if they didn't cry out, the very rocks would. And so something began there at that point in time, though. You have these people that are in control in the nation that are disconcerted with Jesus. And something has been brewing for some time and it comes to head during this week and you can see it build during the week. And uh, I must stop right here and say that I was going to be talking about the crowd this morning because everybody talks about the crowd and how fickle the crowd can be. And how it was the same crowd that on Palm Sunday cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're all welcoming Jesus. And you get the impression it's the same crowd on Friday that's spitting at him and yelling, crucify him. And yelling at while he's on the cross, he saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? But I learned something as I was preparing this week. There are two crowds in this story. 
And one of the things that got me thinking about it was watching the uh, different political things that are going on today. You know, there is a, a revolution of sorts going on today. It's kind of the American version of the Arab Spring, if you would. There are those that are fed up with current leadership. And in both parties, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, there are those who are trying to uh, turn things upside down and, and uh, bring, they, they don't want to listen to the current leadership anymore. They want some new people in there. And the people who are in leadership, the people who have been in control for a long time, are scared. The people who are in control are worried that their gravy train is about to come to a screeching halt. That things might change in ways that they don't want them to. This is on both sides of the aisle, and I'm not going to be trying to lift up one party over another, but there's something going on, and those who are entrenched in power are not happy about these upstarts that seem to be turning things upside down. As I was looking at that and I started looking at the crowd and looking at what happened during Holy Week, I see some tremendous similarities there. Because you see, first of all, as Jesus came in, he starts being confronted by the old guard. And they're telling him he needs to straighten up. He needs to straighten his people up. He needs to get them in line. And he says, nah, not today. This is a special day. And so it moves on through the week. He cleanses the temple. Now, if people weren't upset before, now they are upset because he is biting into their pocketbooks big time. Then he uh, winds up, uh, they have discovered that they can't control him, and so they start trying to discredit him. First of all, they, uh, uh, they, try to, they, they try to turn the crowd, his followers, against him. They bring up the subject of taxes. Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to, the, to Caesar? And Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. He said, render unto Caesar what Caesar's, but render unto God what's God's. Have you ever noticed what he's saying there? They got it. They knew what he was saying. We are all created in whose image? God's. His image is on each one of us. And so he's saying, yeah, give Caesar the Caesar stuff. Give God what's God's. Give him your taxes, but give God you. Well, what could, they, what could anybody say about that? And so they couldn't discourage him. They couldn't discredit 
him in front of his followers. And so then they enlisted the Pharisees and the scribes, got together with their enemies, the Sadducees. If there were two, there were two different sects of Jews that both had tremendously different views. And one believed in the resurrection, the other did not. One believed in keeping the law to the very jot and tittle. The other thought, hey, you know, we got a lot of wiggle room here. And so there were these two groups that were just very opposed to each other. They could never get along about anything, and yet they could all agree, this guy's got to go. We've got to get rid of him so we can get back to the way things were. And so the Sadducees come forward, and they are going to try to cause division and try also at the same time try to discredit him and say, okay, teacher, there's this guy, he was married, and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, he died, and his brother married his wife, this woman, and then he died, and, this, and, and so, so uh, several, one woman, several husbands, and now then, so whose wife is she going to be after the resurrection? And they didn't even believe in the resurrection. You see what they're doing? They're even compromising their own values by even talking about a resurrection as if it's really so. And so the leadership is starting to compromise values in order to meet an end. And so what does Jesus say? He says, Don't you, haven't you read what it says? But how they're neither married or given in marriage in heaven. And again, even though he covered the resurrection, he said, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection. He did it in such a way that was grounded in their scripture and they could not discredit him. They couldn't cause the crowds to turn against him. And after that, they began to plot to get rid of him. And ultimately, they did, didn't they? And so I saw this power struggle going on here. And the, but the thing is, as this goes on, remember there was this crowd that came in with Jesus. They follow him, they listen to him every day during the week. They get up, they never quit listening to him. They never quit coming to him to be ministered to by him. And he continued to heal. He continued to teach. And the leaders, they're afraid of the crowd. And so they have these secret meetings and they plot and they plan to get rid of Jesus. And ultimately, they bribe and they threaten, they bully false witnesses. They come by night. And you see, there was another crowd that they had gotten together that comes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this crowd, not the crowd of his followers that's with him every day, just soaking in what he has to say, and in anticipation 
of what he has to offer. There's another crowd. It's a crowd that's gathered behind the scenes and sneaks around in the dark. And they come by night. They have him arrested. The crowd follows him all through the night from Pilate to Herod to Pilate to ultimately the cross. And it's that crowd of scribes and elders and Pharisees and their cohorts, it's that crowd that does the jeering and the sneering and is so hateful to Jesus. Not the other crowd. And so at about 9 o'clock one morning, whenever people are just coming out and starting to stir around from the crowd of his followers, they discover that Jesus is being led by a Roman cohort to the cross to be killed. And they grieve along the way. They gather around the cross to grieve. And so the crowds are mixed there at the bottom of the cross. Some jeering, some grieving. There was one in that crowd, though, that has been around the story of Jesus since its beginning. At the, you see, and I'm going to go ahead and take you on through. After Jesus died, they took him down. And I want to pick up in the, uh, at the end of, 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 in John the 19th chapter, we read, After these things, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Now Joseph of Arimathea was in a unique position to do this because Joseph of Arimathea was one of the 12 magistrates of Jerusalem, of that area. He was one of the chief leaders of that area. And so he had Pilate's ear. He was one of the few people that could have gone to Jesus, to Pilate, and asked for Jesus' body to be buried. And then, so then we go on and ask Pilate they might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus. We first see Nicodemus 
coming by night to Jesus at the very beginning in the third chapter of John. It is in that wonderful third chapter of John as Jesus is just beginning his ministry that we hear Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we hear Nicodemus saying, how can a man be born again? He has questions. And then Jesus gives that wonderful verse, John 3.16, as he's explaining things to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, let me tell you about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the wealthy, he was one of the three wealthiest men in all of Jerusalem. He was so wealthy that they say that his wealth could have supported the entire city of Jerusalem for ten years. That is how wealthy Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the youngest member ever of the Sanhedrin. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. And people have finally figured out that the rich young ruler was Nicodemus. So now that I want you to see the rest of the story, we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus with questions. He sees and he says, we know you are from God. And then after that conversation, we see him again, still in the seventh chapter of John, defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And he risked things there. He risked his position on the Sanhedrin. And now, here we see him. It's like he's pondered these things. He's considering who Jesus is. And, and, and he has questions. You see, as all this other intrigue and stuff is going on around Jesus, Nicodemus is looking at things that are deeper. He's not concerned about power plays and position and uh, how things appear, popularity, things like that. Because he knows that something is missing. He knows there's more to life than property. Because he has more than anybody and it's not filling this hole. He has more power than just about anybody else in town. And he has popularity. He has all these things. He has prestige. It said that uh, if you come to the place to where there was a law that to speak in a disrespectful way to a member of the Sanhedrin 
was like speaking disrespectfully to God. You could get kicked out of the synagogue for speaking disrespectfully to one of the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus had the power, position, prestige, all popularity, all those things that everybody strives for that the world says makes life, life worth living. And something wasn't right. And what Jesus said, and in his presence, something was just pulling him. He wanted what it was. And finally he comes to the point to where just before Jesus sets off to the cross, it says he comes running up to him and he's ready. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? Whatever it is, Lord, I'm ready. And it said that Jesus loved him. He said, you just lack one more thing. One thing. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. And then come. Take up your cross. And follow me. It says he went away sorrowful. But it didn't say he went away not going to do what Jesus told him to do. Now then, whenever we next see Nicodemus, it's where he's not afraid, he's not ashamed of being associated with Jesus at all. He's with his best friend, Joseph of Arimathea. That was his best buddy. Here, he and Joseph lay the body of Jesus to rest. At this point, we discovered that Nicodemus has no money. The wealthiest, one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem died penniless. Many years later, he was buried close to Stephen the martyr. He was a relative of Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, who was held in respect by the Jews as one of the greatest teachers that they ever had. Gamaliel was his relative and in his poverty, Gamaliel took Nicodemus in. And so he lived with Gamaliel till he died. You see, that's the rest of the story. The rich young ruler, Nicodemus, had questions and he got answers. And the biggest question of all is what's the most important thing in this world? And that important thing is total commitment to Jesus. The question for us as we enter into Holy Week is what is it that might be keeping us from experiencing that thing that we need the most in life? 
What is it that we, that if Jesus was to lovingly tell us we needed to let go of, what would it be? I encourage you to seriously and earnestly ask him this week. And he will lovingly tell you. It may be that there's nothing between you and him. But there may be one thing, just one thing, that's keeping you from knowing him in his fullness and keeping you from eternal life here and forever. Nicodemus found it. He found it. How about you? What might it be? Just stop and think. What is it that, that you need to let go of? It might be, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, wealth isn't always a bad thing. But for Nicodemus, that's what it was. With you, it might be elevating your spouse above the Lord. With you, it might be a grudge that you just cannot let go of. With you, it might be just, I'm not even going to name it, because you know what it is. The Lord knows what it is, and I don't. But let me tell you, if there is that one thing, Nicodemus will tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it to be free. And I will tell you, it's worth it to turn it all over to him. So many people, they want to contribute. They don't want to commit. How many of you had uh, uh, sausage and eggs or ham and eggs this morning for breakfast? Let's see your hands. Okay. All right. Those of you who had bacon and eggs this morning, the chicken contributed to your breakfast. The hog was committed to it. Do you see the difference? Jesus doesn't want a contribution every now and then. He wants you.